This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon from Jan Bartlett and welcome to my final home time for 2023. I'll be off for four weeks back on the 23rd of January. There have been many guests, many stories, many issues over the year, some successes, some not so successful, but always educating and informative. But we finished 2023 on a very sad note, the attempted genocide of the Palestinian people by the Zionist regime in Israel. Armed and supported by the US and a number of other European countries, and to our shame, our Australian government. We can only hope that sanity in the US prevails and they stop the carnage. They have the power. Turn off the weapons and put an end to the suffering. And we need to keep pressure on our governments to do the same. So for the final program for me for the year, we begin with Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, talking about what must be done. Then to Dr Tim Anderson, bringing the perspective of the Arab nations to the situation. That's where he's been for the last month. Things that we don't hear much of here in Australia. Activist, researcher, broadcaster Jacob Greck, with a focus on the Australian complicity in the attempted genocide in Palestine. Then to the final gene ethics report for 2023 with the Executive Director Bob Phelps, and finally Newcastle-based historian, theologian and social commentator John Quirapel looks over 2023 for some sense in the world. And of course his last, the week that was, for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when as the horrors of the devastation, the slaughter, the massacre, the genocide continue relentlessly, we commented how even the sponsor of the perpetrators was concerned at the image the destruction is having for its protege Zion, a report under US pressure to prevent further mass casualties, Zion says it is being more precise as it widens its offensive. The U.S. sincerity tested as it had the perfect solution to mass casualties, but vetoed calls for a ceasefire. Indeed, in response to those who condemn the war crimes, its president, with the hubris that drives U.S. attitudes to the rest of the world, said the world will look harshly on those who turn their back on freedom's cause relegating the Palestinians to opponents of freedom deserving destruction and elevating war criminality to freedom's cause. While former Queensland copper Peter Dutton said it was shameful that Australia at last voted to end the slaughter. Now, a week went after study after study confirming every other study's finding that cut stone is deadly for workers, the government has taken the courageous step of phasing it out by sometime next year, when we might have thought, clearly fallaciously, that given it is killing workers, silicosis, a dreadful death, a government that cared about workers might just have banned it altogether ages ago when the lethal danger was known. 
Still, if we reckon that response has been slow, has left a bit to be desired, caused all that unnecessary death and injury, the sundry cop that planet Earth's responses to the equally well-known dangers about which they meet has made the silicon response look like greased lightning. Or as the world destruction fossil lobby... But let's clarify, destruction only if there is such a thing as climate change. The World Fossil Destruction Lobby said any resolution must be just, orderly and equitable. Just for us, so people can order our products and ensure our profits are more than equal to last year's profits. See, just, order and more than equal are just, orderly and equitable. At least for the first time, Fossil's got a mention in the final um, report they say laboured over for days. Transition. And to transition from fossils, we have to have fossils from which to transition. So shame to those who campaign to eliminate fossils altogether. Unconsciously, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, preventing the transition from fossils to fossils. Although a bit like the silicon transition, we might have thought, might have thought, that given they meet to discuss the issues around anthropogenic climate change, in which fossils feature heavily, after 28 cops that planet Earth talk fests, the question of fossils just might have made it into a final communique by now. They managed 27 without mentioning the reason they were meeting. No, no, I take that bit back. Uh, Given those climate activists the benefit of the doubt bit, we commented last week that those who oppose fossil pollution are always described by the responsible people in this society as activists, usually pejoratively, impediments to the progress that is good for all of us, unless, like these anti-social activists, we think the destruction of planet Earth isn't quite that good for all of us. But I I take back benefit of the doubt because the Machiavellian manoeuvrings of these public vandals were exposed clearly by no less a fighter for working people than the Western Trublawazi Supremo Roger Cook the Planet. Well-funded environmental groups are working to divide terra nullius, non-land, non-people communities and use them to oppose the development of major resource projects across the country. Tiwi Islanders taking poor Santosas the profits to court over a gas pipeline through their waters, backed by the perfidious Environment Defender's Office, and Terra Nullius non-land, non-people, upsetting poor Woodside with profits attempts to do a little bit of seismic testing off the Barrow Peninsula. To make matters worse, talk about disrespect. One of the non-land, non-people being used in the Woodside with case Save Our Songlines founder Rayleigh Cooper described Cook the Planet's comments as a load of crock. Has she no respect for authority? Well, that's rhetorical. Obviously not. Thankfully, Cook the Planet simultaneously announced sweeping reforms to stop the threat to prosperity, reforms to environmental protection laws to expedite resource projects. Phew! Thank goodness for that. Yes, yes, we heard correctly. Reform environmental protection laws to allow, we assume, resource behemoth carte blanche. Because we know they'll have environmental protection first and foremost on their balance sheets, or sorry, their uh, minds. 
And it gets even worse for the great resource giants, highlighted by a True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, IR shake-up means war on miners. You're not going to believe this, but the poor deers face having to pay workers the same pay for the same work and wage theft as a crime when we know there is no such thing, just an inadvertent inability to read clearly very, very complicated industrial awards. Big business will wage a mining textile campaign against the economic vandals in the all-being-oozy government, the story opened. Did they say wage? Anyway, the True Blue Aussie Minerals Profits Council described it as a declaration of war on business. This reckless bill looms as the tipping point. It is act, an act of economic vandalism, it screamed. And more importantly, something we weren't aware of, True Blue Aussie is also teetering on the edge of a recession as economic growth grinds to a halt. Oh yes, they're doing it tough. Isn't it always the way? Every time greedy workers want something, it is always at the wrong time. On which big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital handed down his in-between budgets budget and announced he was unable to provide any relief from cost of living pressures, but on a positive note told us yet again he knows people are doing it tough. That always makes them feel better. Our filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Gina, showed her usual caring side when she called for the government to help those doing it tough, announcing a heap of tax reforms, which just coincidentally would mean she too wouldn't be doing it quite so tough. Uh, while building up a happy family's day at Gina's, at Christmas time, of course, in the what she really meant to say department, the Queensland Health Minister withdrew from the leadership contest, declaring, it's time for unity. Obviously, Polly speak for, I haven't got the numbers. And in the there was no need to say it department, as a police spokesperson asked why they had not arrested Extinction Rebellion protests, informed us, this does not mean like, you know, we support the protesters in any way like... Totally, totally unnecessary. Proven next day when they laid into the protesters and arrested heaps of them. After the state caring business class opposition complained that they must arrest them, and again, like their federal counterparts, whose courage deserted them when the coalition carried on over that high court decision, we assume the socialist government buckled at the knees, on which P1 screaming headline in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin last week next to picky of Minister Catherine King hit the desperate, Labor, sorry at last. And I thought, oh good, they've apologised to all those people they locked up for years, but no, no, wrong, they apologised for letting them out. And in the, that's a tough one department, after someone had, had attempted to firebomb the Crook Casino, a commentator asked, why would someone bomb the casino? Yes, yes, wonder. By the way, the Casino Supremo, Chris Carruthers, have your money, is being investigated for intervening to admit people who had been banned by security, but surely his actions were quite reasonable because they would have had lots of money and been odds-on to lose. And a farmer in an item suggesting our supermarket duopoly might be ripping off asked, I get $4 a kilo and they sell it for $50 a kilo. Who's making the money? 
Mm, who? Tough one, tough one. Oh, and on the one occasion we wish the Republicans would block legislation, they vote for Forkus and a few more billion of our money to kill people, and the socialists tell us that is exciting news, good for all of us. Finally, on a serious note again, if the dear baby Jesus was looking for a place to be born this week, he'd find there wasn't even a manger left standing. And let's hope his virgin mother wouldn't need medical attention. Meanwhile, let's keep protesting, but also keep safe. Back next year. Good afternoon. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. It's going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer. Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lot. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 during business hours. In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. Another regular guest during the year is Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and also a recently retired Canberra GP. For many years, Sue and others have been calling for changes at the Australian War Memorial, arguing that it has lost its way, spoken and written widely on peace and disarmament issues, the need for an independent Australia and much more. But today... The last program for the year, it has to be Gaza. Well, what we're seeing in Gaza is it's just unconscionable that a situation like this should be occurring and that it's being allowed to continue. And one might say, well, how does one stop Israel from its constant bombardment of of basically civilians and civilian infrastructure in Gaza? But there's... There's a lot that particular countries could do, and I'm thinking especially of of U.S. allies, and particularly the United States, and the United States that keeps on supplying weapons to them. Now, uh, if the U.S. is serious about wanting to stop Israel's attacks on civilians and the terrible civilian toll, 
then they've really got to think about well, you know, how how is Israel able to do this? And they, they're getting enormous amounts of weaponry from the United States. Similarly, in relation to Australia, um, Australia does export weapons to Israel and not on nearly the same scale as the US, but that's what the Australian government should be thinking very seriously about right now and not just thinking about it, but acting on it. The situation in Gaza is absolutely deplorable from absolutely every report that one reads. It's impossible to look at or read or hear any report without being distressed at the level of human suffering and not just human suffering but deliberate infliction of human suffering on a civilian population from the point of view of Medical Association for Prevention of War, our particular perspective, of course, is the healthcare system uh, in Gaza, which has been um, decimated. There's not much of it that's left. Hospitals destroyed, healthcare workers killed, others working around the clock with it, an absolutely overwhelming number of people injured, tens of thousands of people injured, um, and just virtually nowhere for them to go with food, clean water, medical supplies, all of those, um, hardly any coming into the country. It's it's really impossible to to imagine uh, what what life is like there for, for the people and yet we must. We mustn't turn away. When they talk about twenty thousand dead, then there's a the story of the injured, there's talking about 40,000, 50,000. One commentator I heard said many of those people are going to die, whether it's from their injury, from disease, from infections, and there's no pain relief for it. You can imagine burns, shrapnel. It's just unimaginable, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And what what's been said about the number of injuries i mean no nobody could could really have a um a firm estimate at the moment it's just impossible to actually count them but generally to get an estimate of the number of people injured in a warlike situation war then we would multiply the number of dead several times to get an uh, some idea of the number of injured people so with close to 20,000 people dead, then yes, the number of injured is going to be very many tens of thousands. And what is the situation like for them? As you've said, one can't imagine with health services having so very little to offer. This is just, it's impossible to think about the extent to which ethics, morality, etc., in this current situation have been absolutely tossed overboard. UN representatives and others have said that words fail us and how does one how does one really describe a situation that is just so inhumane as what we were seeing what we're seeing in Gaza at the moment. Words do fail us. How does one talk about these talk about these things? And yet as I mentioned we mustn't turn away. The words might fail us but we mustn't turn away. And that's the issue too, is that 
what we are seeing and hearing now is probably only a a small section of what we really should be hearing and seeing because so many journalists have been deliberately murdered by the Israeli forces. Uh, Yes, there's been murders of journalists um, and killings of healthcare workers, uh, UN workers, the UN Relief and Works Agency that over a long, long period has been the primary agency delivering a lot of services to the Palestinian people, health, education, social services, etc. They've had workers killed, other UN workers have been killed, uh, MSF, Medicine Sound Frontier, have had people killed. Most of the humanitarian agencies working there have had people killed because there are just so many people being killed. And this is unlike anything that the world has seen in living memory. And people who are there say that say that repeatedly humanitarian agency representatives say this is unprecedented. MSF, the director of Medicine Sans Frontieres, recently, a couple of weeks ago, wrote to the UN Security Council imploring that action be taken for a ceasefire. And uh, he said, the MSF director said that the Israeli Defence Forces have had absolute total disregard, blatant disregard for the protection of healthcare services in Gaza. And this is unprecedented. We know that for for some time, well, probably for a, for a long time, healthcare services have sometimes been destroyed, hit, in uh, in times of war, and sometimes ambulances have been targeted because combatants say, well, on the other side, they they're using ambulances as cover for um, for fighters for combatants. So this is the fact that this happens is not new, but the extent of it happening now is absolutely new with just wholesale destruction of healthcare services, ambulances, healthcare workers. This is new. This is a new type of warfare. We haven't seen it before in living memory. And this is absolutely frightening. And it's great- frightening for us here in Australia. Uh, for those who are caught up in it, one cannot imagine. And frightening also for the people of West Bank, what awaits them? Yes, it is. And already we know that there have been a lot of attacks from is from Jewish settlers in the West Bank on Palestinians. Um, I believe hundreds of Palestinians there have been killed in the last couple of months. So, yes, it it's frightening for them also who's who's going to be next. No Palestinians are, are safe at the moment and particularly in, in Gaza, but it's also in the West Bank. The more or less a green light that has been given by the Israeli government to do what you like, we don't care, and no effort is taken to spare civilians at all. And when you see a bevy of United States senators or members of their Congress going to Israel, talking with Netanyahu, supporting him, and now we have Australian members of parliament going to Israel and supporting the government of Israel at this time. 
Yes, well, visits from Australian parliamentarians and parliamentarians from other places to Israel and paid visits is not new. Lobbyists for the Australian for Israeli government um, have been doing this for quite a long time, and Australian MPs and others have been taking up the offer, which is pretty shameful in in itself. But what we need from the Australian government right now, what we desperately need, is for them um, to be talking to to both sides in this, to Hamas and to the Israeli government. Uh, what we can pretty much guarantee is that there won't be any transparency about what happens between Australian leaders and President Netanyahu, um, sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu. We're very unlikely to know the outcome of those discussions. And uh, yes, because of the Australian government's pretty blatant uh, support for Israel over over and above Palestine, uh, even though they've come out recently with some uh, slightly better statements in support of Palestinian rights. But all along, the Australian government's support, basic underlying support for Israel has been pretty clear. So the discussions between the Israeli and Australian governments now, we can't really take as a good sign, unfortunately. Do you see the power of the Israeli or the Zionist lobby here in Australia and also in the United States helping to prop up their governments to do what they're doing? Oh, yes, definitely in Australia. It seems that uh, every time somebody calls for a ceasefire or somebody uh, calls out Israel's grossly, grossly disproportionate response to what happened, what Hamas did on October 7, every time that happens, we assume lobbyists for for the for Israeli government policy are um, decrying those statements or the calling for somebody to resign or the calling for something to be censored. It seems that um, statements in support of Palestinian rights are really not not allowed as far as the Israeli lobby is concerned. And we've seen it in the healthcare field too when young Palestinian doctors in Australia have been desperately concerned for not just for the destruction of healthcare in Palestine, in Gaza, but also because a lot of them have got loved ones there, friends and relatives. So they've been calling calling out, speaking out in Australia for the protection of healthcare and healthcare workers in Gaza. And young Palestinian doctors in Australia have been reported to the um, APRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioner Registration Agency. They've been reported for speaking out about what's happening in Gaza. This is unconscionable. It's the duty of healthcare professionals to speak out when there are attacks on healthcare. It's not something that they should be reported to the regulation agency for. It's what they should be doing. And yet this is the... Uh, fear that young Palestinian doctors in Australia have that if they speak out, they might be reported to the reg- regulator also, APRA, the regulator. And that's clearly not good professionally. Nobody wants to have that. 
as part of their professional career. So there's an awful lot of intimidation going on uh, and there's a lot of silence going on uh, on matters that are, that are critical, critical for Australia when we call ourselves a democracy and critical for the outcome in for the people of Gaza. And the silencing of the Pakistani-born Australian cricketer over what he wrote on his shoes. Uh, uh, yes, yes, silencing goes on over, uh, yes, in in a number of number of fields. I've been watching the healthcare field more closely than the sporting field, but yes, the same applies there. We're out on the streets in our tens of thousands. We've been doing it now for nine, ten weeks, Sue. People are angry, angry, angry. More things are happening now, though, aren't there? There are people are taking action apart from these rallies. They're blockading different places. They're speaking out at politicians' places of work. Do you see that continuing on and growing? Oh yes, that will grow. Um, how can it not? The situation in Gaza is not getting better at all. It's getting worse. It's getting worse by the day we hear. So the outpouring of concern from Australians will continue, and and it must continue. It must be well well directed. Anger is is a legitimate response to what's happening um, but anger by itself is not sufficient we need to be calling for uh, specific changes in Australian government policy and from the point of view of Medical Association for Prevention of War we believe that the Australian government must be reviewing its policy in relation to sending weapons to Israel sending those weapons right now to Israel is just unconscionable and the Australian government must be reviewing that policy pretty quickly and making an announcement that as long as Israel goes on um, committing war crimes in Gaza, then Australia is not going to supply Israel with weapons. That shouldn't be a difficult call. The Defence Department here claims that um, our defence exports are all considered, well, potential weapons exports are all considered as to whether they could contribute to human rights abuses. Well, any export of weapons to Israel right now is absolutely going to contribute to the risk of human human rights abuses, not just the risk but the reality. So we need to be calling for Australian weapons exports to Israel to stop um, and just uh, Australia must be looking at our diplomatic relations with Israel. I mean, to have dipl- diplomatic relations still with a country that is committing war crime upon war crime is not something that the Australian government should be continuing. So these are the sorts of things, the actions that we want from the Australian government. Final comment, Sue? Well, I'll just add one other thing, Jan, um, which is the sort of actions that people around the country are taking. We know that for some time the University of Melbourne has um, had a uh, financial relationship with Lockheed Martin, which is the biggest weapons company in the world and supplies a lot of weaponry to Israel. That relationship uh, has been criticised 
over some years and criticised quite rightly. But there's been a, a renewal of the calls on the University of Melbourne to uh, stop its financial relationship with Lockheed Martin. And right now, when we see weapons supplied by Lockheed Martin and other companies and countries doing such enormous damage to innocent people in Gaza, the calls for any institution to stop financial relationships with Lockheed Martin and other companies that are supplying weapons to Israel. Those calls are really, really important and they've got to be heeded. Thank you very much, Dan. Appreciate that. And we certainly appreciate the work of Dr Sue Wareham and the other health professionals at the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Let's make history. Motorcade for Palestine. We will be back bigger and louder at 12 p.m. on the 23rd of December. Meet opposite Faulkner Cemetery. Our calls will echo through the streets to show that Burn City stands and drives for Free Palestine. Join the Sit Intifada, Free Palestine Melbourne, Black People's Union, Renegade Solidarity Audio Force at 12 p.m. on the 23rd of December. Follow Renegade Solidarity Audio Force on Instagram for more information. Motorcade for Palestine, a 3CR supporter. You can try to avoid us, but it's pointless. You can never avoid the voices of the voiceless. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to the 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Dr. Tim Anderson has been a regular visitor to the Middle East over a number of years and last week returned to Australia from yet another. I spoke with Tim the next day and the main topic had to be Palestine, what Israel has planned for the people, not only in Gaza, but also the West Bank, East Jerusalem and the other occupied lands from 1967. Begin, Tim, with what is being said, read, written, reported about the attempted genocide in the Middle East countries you travelled to over the past month. Of course, in Lebanon, things have been very quiet because in Beirut, at least, the people aren't coming in. Flights aren't coming in as they were because of the wars going on in the the south there on the border. Indeed, it killed a lot of civilians in the south there. They've been using the same sort of weapons, white phosphorus, on villages in south Lebanon. So there's sort of a depressed sort of silence there and concerns about escalation, I suppose. The escalation question being handled fairly carefully at the moment because Hezbollah's been deliberately just attacking all of the Israeli military bases in the north of occupied Palestine and also in parts of occupied Lebanon. Remember, Israel occupies parts of Lebanon and Syria as well as Palestine. And that has been drawing about a third of the Israeli army away from Gaza. That's one of the reasons that they're doing it, to um, to give relief to the resistance in Gaza. So the, in, in Lebanon, you've got a particular situation. In Syria, you've got another situation where the Israelis are still attacking different bases and um, the air 
what do you call it, the batteries that, that uh, address the air attacks and so on in Syria. But there's also some concerted resistance attacks from the Iraqi side on U.S. bases in Iraq and in Syria in response to the U.S. role in Gaza. You know, so there's there's quite a level of coordination going on. Then, of course, you've also got the Yemeni role. The Yemenis have effectively brought into the war. They've declared war effectively on, on Israel and have been attacking ships and sending missiles into the southern part of occupied Palestine. So there's quite a lot going on in different um, ways in the region there. Do you think Israel might have bitten off more than it can chew? One of the outcomes of the of the attack, the much misrepresented attack on October the 7th, is that the Israeli military was crushed in many ways. Its reputation, its morale, the Gaza division was almost wiped out. The, the, the Israelis admitted that over 500 security and police were killed on October the 7th, and they're admitting now that a lot of the civilians that were killed were actually killed by the Israelis themselves in what they call a Hannibal Directive, where they just fire at people when they can't tell the difference between resistance fighters and Israeli civilians, you know. So the Israeli military received a a very severe blow on October the 7th, and it's relying very heavily on its international support. Now, all of the bombs being dropped on Gaza are from the U.S., basically, and they're totally dependent on the U.S. support and also support from other U.S. um, allies around the world. So the equation there, as they say, in the region has changed quite a bit. When you said the much misrepresented attack, is that what you just meant when you were talking about what we weren't told about the attack? Yeah, I think it's morphed into the the sort of the Israeli-US narrative has morphed into this idea that Hamas simply went in to attack civilians. And uh, far from the truth, most of the people they attacked were military. They did take a number of prisoners, military and civilian, uh, you know, and there were all these accusations about beheaded babies and raped women and so on none of which uh, has, has produced any evidence uh, to back up those sorts of claims there. But that's the sort of the, the common theme has been, do you condemn Hamas because this was a terrorist attack? It, it's entirely wrong, basically. And it's not the way it's seen in the region either. I think um, even though Hamas may not have been the most popular of the resistance groups in the region there, nevertheless, I think there's a, a fair degree of respect uh, in the Arab world and amongst the Palestinians for the fact that they had the capacity to take on the enemy and strike a very hard blow against it. No one else had been doing that. And conversely, the prestige of the Palestinian Authority and the PLO to a fair degree has fallen drastically because they said to the Palestinian population 30 years ago with the Oslo Accords, look, if we're just nice to the Israelis, things will get better. And of course they didn't. The theft of land, the so-called settlements in the West Bank have expanded savagely. They're still expanding as we speak, basically. So really, um, I think in in the region, people see that direct resistance is the only option the Palestinians have. Obviously, the world doesn't care that that most of the Western world or the Anglo-American world is cheering on and arming and funding the bombardment of of Gaza. So there's no no hope on that side of things. So really, direct resistance is is the only option that's seen amongst Arab populations. Talk a bit, Tim, about the much maligned Hamas. Is that true that they are? There's some contradictions there, but they're much maligned because, as I said, this October the 7th attack was the military side of it has been downplayed substantially. In in fact, the major, the objectives were to destroy the Gaza division, which they effectively did. An Israeli air attack was called in on the Gaza division. So not only were there 
civilian, many civilian casualties of friendly fire, like in the, like in the music festival, as has emerged now, but also military casualties of friendly fire. And they're admitting the same in the ground operation in Gaza. Now the Israelis are saying that uh, up to 20% of the Israelis being killed in Gaza now are being killed in friendly fire. So it's a military which is its capacity is very limited. We know that they can bomb from the air. They've killed thousands of civilians. That's, but that's not war, basically. That's a, that's a massacre. Hamas, um, as one of the six major Palestinian resistance groups, has probably showed itself to be the most capable in terms of its military capacity. Not just the October 7th attack, but the fact that they are fighting, ambushing and killing a lot of Israeli troops who have invaded Gaza now in, in the middle of this terrible siege. So Hamas has been, was joined from October the 7th with Islamic Jihad, which is another Islamist group, but less sectarian history than Hamas. Then on the West Bank, you have another another four groups there associated with the with the other political parties, the nationalists and the socialist parties, for example. So Hamas has its its own history and baggage, if you like, in the region because it's been associated with the Muslim Brotherhood in the past, and therefore it's had sponsorship from Qatar, for example, and Qatar's media arm Al Jazeera. But the Muslim Brotherhood also its history of, has its history of collaboration. So there are some very important or interesting contradictions because the role Qatar is playing, for example, uh, in, on the one hand supporting Hamas, on the other hand hosting a, the major US air base in the region and then being the broker for the, the prisoner exchange recently when there was that brief ceasefire a little while back. So the Hamas has its own, uh, its own history in Syria too. They entered into the Syrian war with the, um, with the Javad al-Nusra, with the al-Qaeda proxies because Part of Hamas, I should say, part of Al Qasim militia, which is the the military arm of Hamas, part of that militia entered into that war with Jabhat al Nusra. So there's a great deal of resentment in Syria against the role of Hamas there, and in Palestine also, uh, many of the young men there who don't like sectarianism didn't like Hamas. But as I said, and and as Hannah Ashrawi said, Hannah Ashrawi, who herself was a was a minister and um, a member of the PLO uh, for some time, she said, well. People are going to say in Gaza, look, at least someone stood up for us there. And what Hamas did um, in attacking the, the Israeli Gaza division has uh, is certainly going to get a great deal of respect, if grudging respect, amongst the Palestinian population. Their popularity has almost certainly risen substantially amongst the Palestinian population. When I said much my mind, I meant also that 16 years where they've been in charge of Gaza. What has that been for the people? And there's the story that the Israelis supported them to be there to separate the Palestinian people, to draw a line between them and the governing power in West Bank. That's right. The Hamas has been effectively running the government agencies in Gaza, including, for example, not least the, the health system there. And indeed, from the beginning, Hamas began as a group which gained a lot of support in the early stages through being involved in social services, in other words, providing ground-level support for the population there, given that they are under siege and under enormous pressure there. Now, in terms of the Israeli role, it's true that the Israelis at time, including Netanyahu, actually tended to favour Hamas against the other groups because they wanted to and not just Hamas, but any Muslim Brotherhood groups. There's one within 48 Palestine, as they call it, what others call Israel, you know, the the original core of the Israeli state there. There's a Muslim Brotherhood group there, which has also given some 
favourite treatment because they know that um, the Israelis know, just as the US knows, that sectarian religious groups incite divisions and fight infighting, basically. And the, the Muslim Brotherhood strategy in the whole region, for example, not just in Palestine, but also in Egypt and Syria, has been in the past to defeat their secular or nationalist um, rival first and then the external enemy second. And so that's been very seen, looked on very favourably by divide and rule occupiers, basically. So the Hamas received favourable treatment in the past, basically. Uh, it's wrong to go farther than that and say that the Israelis created it. The Israelis didn't create Hamas. It really it came genuinely out of a Muslim Brotherhood-inspired menu. But um, it's tried to hide that Muslim Brotherhood um, role in the past. But it, back in 2012, when um, Morsi was president of Egypt, political leadership of, of Hamas at that time went to Qatar. Qatar is one of the bases of the Muslim Brotherhood. Turkey also under Erdogan. And back when the Egyptian president was Muslim Brotherhood linked, they cut their ties with, um, or, or cut a lot of their ties with Iran, Hezbollah and Syria, for example, and went to Qatar. Now that's reversed. In recent years, they've re-established ties with Iran, and Iran has given strong backing to Hamas in recent times. But Iran's approach has been, and Syria's approach has been, to support all of the factions of the Palestinian resistance and let the Palestinians work out amongst themselves, you know, what the relative weight is and how they're going to form their own version of governance. Can you talk about the role of Egypt in the past two months and perhaps the role of Jordan? In relation to Egypt, you know that um, Egypt under Sadat in the 70s created a separate, its own separate peace agreement with the Israelis. They got back the Sinai that was taken from them back in the in the 60s, have been collaborating with them ever since, effectively. But um, apparently, when Morsi was president before the current guy, Sisi, he did help Hamas in some ways with tunneling equipment, which account, helps account for the the level of sophistication in the tunnels in Gaza at the moment, which is being used to great effect against the invading Israeli force. So, But nevertheless, Egypt, by and large, has been a, a party to the, the siege of Gaza, has been some sort of some versions of um, underground support, because at a popular level in Egypt, the, the Egyptian people are very strongly pro-Palestinian. They'll help them where they can. There's also been incidents where Israeli tourists have strayed into Egypt and been shot by police, for example. There's been a number of incidents where individual police have attacked the Israeli tourists. So there's a great deal of hostility to the Israelis in Egypt and at a popular level, a great deal of support for the Palestinians. But the, the military president there, um, Sisi, has been a collaborator and, and rather economically dependent collaborator of the US and the Saudis. And, and working with the Israelis. And also remember that Sisi himself has been hostile to Muslim Brotherhood groups for their role in Egypt. So therefore, Sisi is much less sympathetic to Hamas now than Morsi was before, for example. So there are some contradictions there. Um, nevertheless, the popular support for Palestine has sort of driven the these convoys of trucks and so on that have, that have tried to take water and, and relief supplies to Gaza. But nevertheless... The Egyptian regime is, is still embedded in this project of collaborating with the Israelis and maintaining, for the most part, this siege on Gaza. Now, in Jordan, you've got a similar situation because the Jordanian regime, the monarchy there, is a direct collaborator with the Israelis. And whatever the king of Jordan says or his wife says, they have been collaborating with Mossad, with the Israelis, on many, many levels against Palestinians and particularly against Palestinian militants and activists, basically. They control 
for example, the movement of Palestinians in and out of the West Bank through Jordan, for example. But at a popular level, there's massive support for Palestinians. Some of the biggest demonstrations in the region have been seen in Jordan, in, in the capital, Amman in particular, and many of them went down to the border more recently where the government tear-gassed them on the border. But there's a huge groundswell of, of support for Palestinians in Jordan. Indeed, most Jordanians have family links to, to Palestine or themselves are Palestinian families from the past. So Jordan is one of those collaborator Arab monarchies which um, is quite distinct in character to the popular idea of Palestine and, and the Arab world at a, at a popular level. Yemen, would you have expected them to come into this conflict? Yeah, look, first of all, let's understand that the Yemeni groups that have been sending missiles into Israeli bases and, um, and, and taking over ships, this is the Yemeni armed forces. There is a, something called the National Salvation Government, which is a coalition led by Ansarallah. Now, Ansarallah used to be, came out of a group called the Houthis. Most of the world is now keeps referring to them as Houthi rebels. They are not rebels. They are actually the government. They control uh, more than 70% of the populated areas in Yemen. But because the UN Security Council has designated them as some sort of outsiders, as rebels, and legitimised the, the international siege on the people of Yemen, that is to say, you know, the, because they control 70% of the populated areas, this economic siege on 70% of the, of the Yemeni people is being enforced with the blessing of the UN Security Council, unlike the siege, so-called sanctions on other countries like Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, for example. This has the unanimous support of the UN Security Council. But so the role of Yemen is not one of Houthi rebels, it's one of the Yemeni armed forces, and it's a genuine coalition where the armed forces that existed before the, the revolution of 2014-2015 is fully part of this operation. Now, the Yemeni uh, and the Ansarallah party, the leading party, have always been extremely pro-Palestine, extremely anti-Israeli. It's in their coat of arms, their banner, you know, which says, amongst other things, death to Israel. It is significant, I suppose, to, to point out that the what they're doing with the shipping now, blocking all shipping blocking or attacking shipping going to Israeli ports to resupply the apartheid regime in occupied Palestine is something that they didn't do during their own battle. In other words, when they were fighting this US-Saudi-led coalition trying to tried to crush them and prevent them from taking over Arden, the, the port of Arden, for example, they didn't um, use their strategic control of the Bab al-Mandab Straits there into the Red Sea. It's only in relation to the the struggle in Palestine and the the role that they can play in, in supporting the Palestinian resistance against the Israelis, that they've, they've played this card. It's always been in the back pocket, so to speak, that they could play this card of intercepting shipping going into the Red Sea. But they haven't. They didn't do it for their own war. They're doing it for the Palestinians. I think that's significant. Um, but it's, it's been very well known that they've been extremely anti-Israeli and, and pro-Palestine. You've mentioned Qatar. What about the other kingdoms? The Persian Gulf Arab monarchies, I guess you're talking about the Saudis and the others, they have their own collaborating role. You know, Bahrain, at a ground level, all of those populations are very pro-Palestinian. But at the regime level, um, they're all very undemocratic monarchies. You know, Bahrain, for example, hosts the largest U.S. naval base there, crushed the, the democratic opposition back in the Arab Spring. 
The Saudis, of course, are well-known collaborators with the U.S. and and brutal, bloody regime, basically, that created ISIS on behalf of the U.S. to divide the Iraqis and then to use against Syria, for example. But they've been standing back. I think one uh, one effect of the um, the resistance attack in October. Uh, from Gaza was that a possible process towards normalization between the Saudi regime and the Israelis was derailed. Basically, the Saudis, in a very pragmatic sense, just said, well, we, we're going to wait and see what goes on here because no one wants to back a loser, basically. And if the Israeli regime is going down, the Saudis were were pulling back a little bit. Before that, if you remember, the Saudis, and they're the most important Persian Gulf Arab monarchy, and they influence the others, you know, like they really have a great influence over Bahrain and and some of the other. They had um, normalised with Iran to a degree, brokered by China, invited Syria back into the Arab League. The role of the Saudis has been shifting somewhat. They're still very close to the US, but they've started to, you know, make some overtures with China and with Iran and so on, which has started to shift somewhat their, their role in the region there. The one other state in the region there, Oman, has always played a somewhat neutral sort of mediating role such that a lot of um, a lot of talks to reconcile differences between the Arab regimes have, have taken place in Oman. Oman has traditionally had this more, more neutral role. Looking at the countries in the European Union, they're getting sick of um, sending a lot of money into Ukraine. Would it get to the stage where they will pull back from supporting Israel? Yeah, I think that's right. We're already seeing it now that the at the United Nations, for example, most of the Europeans, except the British, I'm not sure if they consider themselves Europeans these days, the British abstained on, on the mo- most recent ceasefire resolution in the General Assembly. But most of the Europeans are taking a, if cautious, but nevertheless a more independent line to the US. They, they, rather, they feel rather betrayed by the US and because of the horrors coming out of Gaza, because of all of the constant images of civilians being killed and children being killed in Gaza, that's that's really mobilised world opinion and it's affected the Europeans to a fair degree. You've even had a couple of the European uh, heads of government down at the, at the Rafa crossing into, into Gaza, you know, demanding the lifting of the siege and demanding a, a ceasefire. That was the Spanish Prime Minister and the Norwegian Prime Minister were down there. So there's some significant dissent being expressed by the Europeans. And that, I think, has also emboldened the Australian government to a certain degree to slightly distance themselves from the US. You notice that um, Penny Wong recently was talking about that they had joined with 150 other states to support this temporary ceasefire resolution, which is which is fairly weak, but nevertheless, it's different to the US line. It's really talking about more humanitarian pauses. In other words, the Israelis pause their bombing of civilians for a short time and then resume it again, basically. So nevertheless, there are some contradictions, some differences arising between the Europeans and the US when it comes to when it comes to Palestine. Is the horror that's being perpetrated by Israel having any impact on the people of the United States? Yes, indeed. I mean, some, and that's important, I think, because um, the international shock and horror at the at the atrocities being carried out in in Palestine. The most recent one this morning I was seeing was that there was an invasion of a school in Gaza City and uh, the execution at point blank range of a large number of children and babies and women in the school. Not even artillery shells, actually, you know, direct point blank range execution of children in the school. That is having a huge impact 
we've seen very big rallies in the U.S. and including significantly amongst the Jewish people in the U.S. saying not in our name. So we've always had these um, Nathri Kata religious Jews who are very anti-Zionist, but at a secular level, the, the less religious, the more liberal Jews in the U.S. have been holding substantial rallies um, here in Australia also, but smaller. But in the U.S. they've been quite big, and and a number of people of a number of Jewish North Americans have you know put their necks on the line, so to speak. They've been arrested in in these actions um, in some prominent places in in Washington and New York, for example. So I think. That's important because it's undermining the will of the Biden regime to keep funding this. Remember, all of the bombs being dropped on Gaza are U.S. bombs. Effectively, the U.S. is directly involved. They're involved in the command and control of the Israeli operations. There are U.S. mercenaries and probably special forces on the ground too there. So, the, and of course, the supply of weapons is is um, what keeps it going. In some ways, some parallels with, with uh, Ukraine because. In a sense, the the Kiev regime and their war in Ukraine has kept going because of the supply of international weapons, and to some extent, the, the, there's some parallels—not not total parallels, but some parallels—with the Israeli regime now, too, because that bombing is really only sustained because of the the ongoing U.S. support for the operation there. Are you saying that the U.S. is also training these Israeli soldiers who are committing the atrocities? That's right, but also directly involved in the command. We've known from the beginning that there are senior U.S. officials involved in the command centres that are, that are directing the operations going on in Gaza, and there are on the ground there are special forces and mercenary groups, private militia also involved with the Israelis because, of course, the Israeli military, as I said before, has suffered some severe blows. Its capacity is very questionable. You know, there have been there have been desertions, there's been all sorts of incidents there that, that they're really there. Their capacity to bomb from the air is not uh, at all consonant with their capacity on the ground. They've really been punished quite severely in the ground operation within Gaza. They're trying to hide the numbers of casualties. And there was one Israeli journalist recently sacked because he revealed that the Israeli casualties have been something like three times higher than those that have been announced. And remember, this is going on in Gaza, but also in the north of occupied Palestine, where Hezbollah has been effectively degrading the U.S. military and the US, uh, sorry, the Israeli military bases in the north of occupied Palestine too. Well, the people of Gaza can't continue like they are. There's hunger, there's starvation, there's disease now. How long can this go before there is an absolute tragedy, if there's not already a tragedy? Well, there is a tragedy already. We know that there's something like 20,000 civilians have been killed, and we know that more than 90% of them are civilians. Even the Israelis are admitting that. The people that they're arresting are mainly not resistance fighters at all. We've seen the evidence again and again, waves and waves of, of, of video evidence, thanks to the brave journalists and people who are recording these atrocities and, and getting them out. And remember, there's been more than 70 journalists killed, Arab journalists, mainly Palestinian Arab journalists, being killed getting those stories out and, and that's what's galvanised the, wor- the world really. But how long it can go on is, is anyone's guess because um, there's some constraints there, of course. Um, one, as you mentioned, is disease, the, the lack of water. But recently, of course, there was some rain there. So people were getting a small bit of joy going out and collecting some rainwater so they'd have some fresh water. Remember, all of the water in Gaza has been cam- contaminated from bef- even before this latest um, bombing, you know, so... There have been terrible conditions there for decades. It's not just recently. People 
life survives in these terrible conditions. You know, I think one of the, the other constraint there is the capacity of the Israeli military to keep doing what it's doing. It's suffering significant losses on the ground there. As I said, it's really going on against the odds, really, because of the international support it's getting. And that's where I think the international campaign is very important to undermine that role of, you know, sending more weapons to the Israelis. Our country, Australia, is sending weapons to the Israelis, you know. So this is something that people even here can have a, can have a say in. But there's no immediate time frame when you can say this cannot go on much longer. You could say the same about Yemen, too, that Yemen's under siege and really been betrayed by the UN Security Council by calling them the government, the effective government there of, of most of the populated areas, Houthi rebels that are a threat to peace. Uh, I've seen reports that the UN World Food Programme is maybe considering stopping any sort of support for Yemen because of the role of the Yemeni armed forces in joining in the war against the Israelis. I don't know to what extent that's true, you know, but these terrible situations unfortunately seem to be able to to sort of keep going, you know. We, we, we can't see what absolute limits are. It's extraordinary what human beings can put up with, really. What do you know about Australians sending supplies to Israel? Well, we know that there are some weapons companies based here that have been sending supplies to Israel. We know that the Australian government, the Albanese government, is supporting that, helping facilitate that, even though it's trying to take a sort of a, a very cautious step back a little bit, because obviously... They, like many of the other regimes around the world, like the Europeans, are feeling very embarrassed now that they are identified with this, with this ongoing slaughter in Gaza, but rightly identified with the slaughter because they've been supporting it. And they've been, in many ways, including in the media, of course, the Australian media is, is a large part of that, really. The Murdoch media, but not just the Murdoch media, supporting the Israeli regime and, and supporting the, the propaganda that backs this war. You know, you've seen many of those sorts of stories, the, the way that they're trying... Now they're trying to demonise the Albanese government for not supporting Israel enough, but the reality is that uh, the Albanese government has been very, very supportive, even to the point with, you know, this is an apartheid regime. We've got six independent reports calling the Israeli regime an apartheid regime, and that means under international law it's a crime against humanity. There is a responsibility on the international community to dismantle an apartheid regime, and it's a crime to recognise an apartheid regime, recognise and support an apartheid regime. So all of those implications from international customary law are things that weigh heavily on, on governments like the Australian government, which has been supporting in so many ways, and not just the government, but the, the, the corporate media as well. Well, finally, Tim, you mentioned before the possibility of... Israel going down. What sort of a possibility? We're already seeing we're already seeing signs from the Biden administration that they want to see a change in regimes in occupied Palestine. It was known well before the recent the recent war that Biden and and the Biden administration doesn't like Netanyahu. Indeed, probably most of the the North American Jewish people don't like Netanyahu either. There's a great deal of hatred towards Netanyahu from. Jewish people in the US and also his popularity amongst the Israelis themselves is very low for a range of different reasons at the moment. So it's an embarrassment that the Biden administration would rather be without. I'm sure they would, they would like to see a, a change in regime, but it's difficult in, in the current circumstances because they feel obliged, I think, to support the massacres in Gaza as the only tool available to the regime at the moment there. But I think the US would like to construct the second Israel, some sort of 
liberal version of Israel, which simply isn't possible. But let's say the, the Netanyahu regime collapses in, in, in some way. There's a lull, there's some talks, and there's some change in regime there. Of course, they can't simply construct some liberal Israeli regime, you know, Mark II, because the Palestinians will have to have a say in that. And there are many Israelis and Jewish people internationally that, that accept that now. If there is a collapse in the Netanyahu regime, there's a possibility that we can look at a some sort of negotiated settlement there, which has a lot of dangers in it, because, of course, you have the problem that a lot of the best land in the West Bank has been stolen in recent times and still being stolen. And, of course, the, the Netanyahu regime has, has no will to engage in any sort of two-state solution, which is what Biden's talking about. Now, Biden has resurrected this idea of a two-state solution. Trump was talking about it at the end of his term there, too. Um, I found rather encouraging the fact when I was in South Africa recently in a, in a conference on Palestine that Nelson Mandela's grandson, Mandela Mandela, is saying this is a Bantustan idea, the idea of two-state solution. They talked about it in South Africa in the 80s, the idea that you give some little native, fragmented native land areas to some tribal chiefs and then they all fight amongst themselves. And it's not a state really at all. In, in, in the way that Trump talked about it, it was really the, the status quo, just calling the Palestinian Authority a state and Israel controlling everything down to even the education system in, in Palestine there. So there is no possibility now with with the way things have developed that there's going to be two states even though a lot of people still talk about it there has to be some form of single democratic palestinian state there uh, where people regardless of their religion or their communities can can ensure equal citizenship with regard to justice in the land and and the refugee spheres there so if there is a collapse of the netanyahu regime and i think something like one of the polls in israel said that they were four percent of the israeli people believe Netanyahu, his popularity is, is extremely low, then the, the doors open up for some sort of negotiated solution. I think the sooner that happens, the better. And many thanks once again to Dr. Tim Anderson. Dear 3CR listeners, Tama Voice is holding our annual Radiothon on Christmas Day, Monday, December 25th, from 9am to 4pm, to raise funds for disadvantaged Victorian Tamil students in need for higher education. It will be a great day of broadcasting, with Tamil news, views, songs, local announcements, children's programs and interviews, with students who receive support from local and foreign community leaders. To donate, call the station on 0394 198377 during the Radiothon to talk with our volunteers and tune in for the Thumble Voices annual Radiothon Monday, December 25th between 9am and 4pm. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
Jacob Craig is a researcher, journalist, writer and activist. And for the last program of 2023, he's talking about the attempted genocide of the Palestinian people and the complicity of Australia. Well, I mean, the thing is, Australia, as listeners would be aware, have recently voted to call for a ceasefire in the war, in the attacks on Gaza. And this was applauded as being a bit of a change of tack for Australia. And it, in some ways it was, even though both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister immediately backtracked with their both sidesism, saying they wanted to also condemn Hamas. But it's been concerning me a bit lately, Jan, because what's been happening is people have been saying that Australia is doing nothing to support Palestine and sitting on its hands and siding with the United States and siding with Israel and all this. And it makes us almost a, I guess you'd call us a ancillary or a disinterested, uninterested character. But the truth is that we're actively involved in what is happening in the attacks on the occupied territories right now and the attacks on Gaza in particular. And so I just wanted to address, if I can for a minute, just how we're involved And it's not just about providing diplomatic support for Israel. It's not just about always being there. It's about providing intelligence. Now, and it's probably a little bit apt at Christmas too, talking about a star, an unusual star in the sky over Bethlehem. But there is a number of satellites over Bethlehem. And, you know, there are a couple of Israeli ones, the OFAC and the Amos. But there's also one just east of Palestine, and the Orion 5 satellite, which is part of the the Orion system that collects information and downloads directly to Pine Gap in Australia. Now, this Orion satellite gathers all telecommunications data, not just off the ground, um, internet links, radio links, locates mobile phone signals, not just, as I say, on the ground, but also from other satellites which are above Palestine. And all that information is sent directly to Pine Gap outside of Alice Springs. Now, that's a very important thing because the information doesn't just stay in Pine Gap, obviously. It goes to the United States, to the NSA via fibre optic cable in Langley, Virginia. But also in 2013, Edward Snowden, who listeners would be aware of, um, released documents which are a memorandum of understanding between the NSA, the National Security Agency in the US, and the Israeli Defence Signals Directorate. That was about the sharing of all raw intelligence data collected from their satellite system, from their SIGINT, their Signals Intelligence System, and specifically mentioned, including that gathered and downloaded in third countries, and specifically mentioned like Australia. Now, what that means is that all the information at the Orion 5 satellite, and it's pretty much focused on Palestine right now, is collecting over Palestine, is sent directly, without any redaction, the raw data to the Israeli military. That's very important because when the Israeli military, or the Israeli ministry, I should say, of propaganda talks about knowing where Hamas are because they've found telephone records, because of internet signals, because of radio communications. They're quoting the information that has been provided to them from the Orion 5 satellite, 35,000 miles, or kilometres rather, up in the air, 
downloading all of its information to Pine Gap. That is the only way that satellite information gets to the ground is via Pine Gap. So they are actually saying that we have this information. We know where the information is coming from and they're using it to justify every bombing on every school, every hospital, every apartment block in Gaza. And everything that happens, like it's quite possible that the Australian government is unaware of what's happening, though they claim that everything that comes through Pine Gap, everything that happens at Pine Gap happens with the full knowledge and concurrence. And these are the words they use, the full knowledge and concurrence of the Australian government. So to my mind, that makes them complicit. What about access to the tunnels? Does that come through satellites as well? If they see access to the tunnels, that the knowledge about the tunnels they would get because of radio signals going through the tunnels, the satellites would pick up the moving radio signals. And so they'll be able to map where radios, mobile phones, etc., were travelling. And if they're travelling in a straight line under a building, then it's obviously a tunnel. So that would be coming through the Orion 5 satellite down to Pine Gap. Now, it would also, of course, be going through the... AMOS satellite, the Israelis' own satellite, but the Israelis' own satellite is basically, it does a bit of military intelligence sucking up, but it's basically communication satellite. It doesn't need to have one because it has an agreement in place with the United States to use the, the Orion, basically the Five Eyes DSLON system. Apart from the satellite instruments, what about Australian military aid? to Israel? I don't know that we give them any aid. We assist them in terms of arms exports. Now, it's really hard. Australia is the most secretive democracy in the Western world, it's often been called. We don't know what's going on in our government. And our arms export regimen is probably the most secretive in the world, whether it's a Western democracy or not. We don't No, we're not allowed to know. Everything is private. We get more information about where Australian arms are going through comments made in the US government than we do out of through freedom of information requests and everything else out of the Australian government. So we don't know. A lot of people have been talking about, you know, doing protests at places like Talis at Bendigo, which probably are sending munitions to Israel, but with no way of proving it under the current secrecy laws in Australia. We do know a few things, Jan, and we, we do know, for example, the Israeli government has made it clear, they've said that they're using F-35s, along with their F-15s, to drop bombs on Gaza. We also know that the F-35 program runs a supply chain that operates from three locations around the world, one in the United States, one in Netherlands, and the third one is from Williamtown Air Force Base just outside of Newcastle up in New South Wales. We also know that Australian companies provide parts for every F-35 in operation on the planet, not just the Australian ones, but the US ones, all of them, even the Israeli ones. We provide parts for them. When we export these parts, we have no idea. No one in the government even has any idea who the end user will be because because it's a global supply chain operated through the US, we send them to a US-based factory and we send parts to the US, the Netherlands and the Newcastle warehouses. Now, even if we send them to Newcastle, it's deemed as an export, but an export to the United States. 
not to Israel or to Germany or Japan or whichever particular end user the F-35 is going to be. So we've lost total control over this arrangement of where um, where our weapons end up being used. There are 70 companies in Australia providing parts for every F-35 on the planet, including here in Melbourne. What about companies like Elbert? What are they up to? Well, Elbert are an Israeli company. It's hard to know exactly. I can conjecture what they're up to, and I can conjecture that they're fitting surveillance technologies and electronic warfare technologies to Australian bushmasters, but weapons transfers between Elbert and Australia are largely to Australia rather than from Australia. They're an evil company, make no mistake about it. And they do provide Australian governments and I think the Victorian government as well with surveillance and te- with surveillance technologies. You know, the very technologies that have been tried and tested hunting down Palestinians are what Australian and Victorian governments are using to um, criminalise dissent in Australia. But those transfers are more to Australia than from Australia. There are other companies. You know, if I just talk about Melbourne just for a moment, you know, we've got a company in Dandenong, a mob called A.W. Bell, and they're the only approved casting supplier of electronic warfare countermeasure magazines worldwide for the F-35. Every electronic warfare countermeasure on every F-35 in the world has got parts made in Dandenong. There's Lovett Technologies up in Greensboro produce a lot of small parts, including the keels for the F-35, which are made out of titanium. And that one's interesting because before they could sell them to Australian and American governments, the Australian government gave them a grant of millions of dollars to buy the right machinery to do it with. You've got Morand down at Moorabbin Airport that build the engine removal trailers and act as a prime contractor for for Lockheed Martin to source equipment from other Australian companies. But there's one in particular I want to mention, and particularly for any listeners over in the eastern suburbs, you know. There's a mob called Rosebank, who used to be known here as RUAG, R-U-A-G. And they make a few things, not just wheel assemblies, but they provide the latches and openers, the latches and the hinges, for the bomb doors for every F-35 in the world. So every time the Israeli military use an F-35 to drop a bomb on Gaza, it could only do that. That's only made possible by the hinges and latches made at 836 Mountain Highway in Bayswater. We're complicit on every bomb that's dropped. There are plenty more companies in in Australia. As I say, there are 70 of them, but they're just the ones I'm talking to you about off the top of my head. You know, there's Ferrer that make the housing components... Kemring that make flares and magazines. There's um, radar components made by a mob called L3 up in New South Wales. Titaniums and aluminium, um, what are they called? Alloys made by WA Specialty Alloys. Australia is one of the main suppliers of parts for the F-35s outside the United States. And that's been Australia's want, hasn't it, over the last few years to be right up there at the top of exporting these dreadful weapons around the world. Yeah, obviously we don't compete with the United States in terms of arms exports or Israel. 
Oh, maybe we are competing with Russia now. I'm not sure. But for our population, we're a relatively small country population-wise, and we're something like the 11th or 12th largest arms exporter in the world. This is the part that gets me, Jan. When people think of arms, they think of bombs and missiles and all the rest of it. But today's sophisticated weapons, like an F-35, like the submarines, like the F-15s, like everything, in fact, is not just made in one factory. They source parts which are purpose-built from factories all over the country. I knew a bloke in Melbourne, a small factory that was making washers, just metal-stamped washers, and they got the contract to um, provide the washers for the, um, for the frigate build. And they were specialised washers. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't just, we'll have, you know, 50,000 one-inch washers. They were specialised washers made to military specifications for a particular job. And just about every engineering business in Australia, if they're not supplying, would be seeking to supply parts for the military-industrial complex because it's where the money is now. Before we finish, Jacob, I'd like to talk about Julian. When you think about Julian, you think about these exposés of the war machines around the world and you, you, your mind turns back to the work that Julian has done over many years. Of course. He famously made a statement some years ago that if wars are started by lies, peace could be gained by the truth. That's an important thing because, you know, as, we're, as I'm saying, when we're talking about the Australian government's complicity in the attempted genocide of the Palestinian people, we're talking about lies, lies and lies. And Julian's whole stick, his whole reason for doing what he and his friends did with WikiLeaks wasn't because they were naughty hackers. People need to remember this. Wasn't because they could wasn't because they wanted to cause trouble, but because they believed that if the people knew the truth of what their governments were doing, they would change their governments. Now, okay, he may have been somewhat argue, argue in retrospect that he was a bit naive in thinking that he would do that they would do that, but that was that was always from day one his motivation in starting WikiLeaks. And it must be breaking his heart, not just sitting there in, in Belmarsh, but sitting there in Belmarsh, getting news of the wars that are spread by lies by his own government, the Australian government. It must be breaking his heart that with all the work he did and all the pain he's suffered and paid for because of that, we continue going down the same road. Others carry on his work. Edward Snowden, 10 years ago, did a lot of work and... Um, most um, media outlets in the world now have the kind of anonymous Dropbox that Julian and WikiLeaks pioneered because at the, at the heart of WikiLeaks was the mathematics of being able to anonymously submit documents. That was the heart of the mathematical brilliance of what Julian did. Um, but others are doing his work. But also, I've got, to be, I've got to be honest and say, to some extent, others aren't. Because I've talked to journalists and I've talked to people, you know, I'm involved in research in the military-industrial complex, and I know people are scared. If they say this, if they say that, if they say the other, they don't want to, you know... I saw what happened to the last bloke who did that, whether it's Snowden or Assange or Manning. It's got people quite rightly scared. I've got to say here, when I'm talking about Australian lies, it's not just the good guys 
who are scared and keeping their mouths shut. It's even our politicians. I mean, Albanese knows what's going on. He knows how wrong it all is, but he's not going to speak against the United States. He saw what happened to the last guy that did that in 1975. Everybody's running scared. And it's up to us, to, I believe, to continue Julian's quest of using truth to start the peace. And more power to you, Jacob, for continuing on that work. Uh, we just do what we can, mate. We do, but some do a little bit more than others. And I believe Jacob is just one of those. Jacob Craig. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. On this last program, I'm speaking also to the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps. And Bob, it's been a busy year as usual. No sitting on your hands. Well, this has been one of our busiest years, as you said, uh, Jan. And uh, yeah, uh, we've had some success. Uh, I guess our most signal win was at, uh, near the beginning of the year when we objected to uh, the field trialling of a genetically engineered ryegrass. A company based in New Zealand wanted to uh, test its ryegrass out in Australia because it couldn't do it at home and it had failed in the USA. And uh, we raised our objections to it with the Office of Gene Technology Regulator and the GM ryegrass release proposal was rejected. So that was pretty good, really. Of course, they put it down as withdrawn, but uh, what the regulators tend to do is just say, look, this isn't going to fly. We'll let you withdraw gracefully and we won't have to publish any of the detail on the website. So it disappeared without trace and that was fairly good. A bit cheeky, isn't it? After being rejected in New Zealand, we'll have a go in silly old Australia. Yes, oh, well, the company is also represented over here, the seed company that wanted to uh, try it out. But it was pretty clear that uh, if it had been approved, it would have escaped from the field trial and been a... um, a real problem in the environment because we already have uh, herbicide-tolerant ryegrass as a major invasive weed. 
throughout ecosystems in Australia, despite the fact that a lot of people grow it uh, both in their on, as lawn uh, at home and uh, also as pasture for animal feed on farms. It's just become so invasive and it can't be controlled by regular spraying of Roundup, for instance. Uh, uh, it's resistant to that particular herbicide. So uh, uh, it's good that it was rejected, I think. Um, of course, it still needs to be managed. And um, hopefully uh, Roundup, which has taken some big hits this year with uh, major awards of, uh, in the USA, where uh, it's now acknowledged that it is a um, cause of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer, in human beings that uh, Monsanto has been sued for now billions of dollars. And uh, there's a whole rethink needed because uh, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority here is still silent to the fact that Roundup is a carcinogen and uh, can cause cancer in humans. Next cab off the rank. It's been such a busy year. Um, we opposed the genetically manipulated bananas uh, which are proposed for release in the north of Australia. And uh, we haven't heard back from Food Standards or from the Office of Gene Technology Regulator uh, whether or not, firstly, the bananas will be allowed to be grown, and secondly, whether or not they'll be allowed to come into the human food supply. So we're um, awaiting the response of uh, the regulators, but typically they will give it a tick. And uh, the Queensland University of Technology probably will be allowed to go ahead. So it'll be a matter then of um, resistance from the community to this unnecessary uh, genetic manipulation of bananas because we don't at the moment have a major problem of the uh, disease which these bananas are supposed to resist. Uh, I think the plan of the promoters of the bananas is to actually export them overseas where there are additional environmental problems from a blight, uh, a soil-borne disease, a fungus, which um, affects bananas. And uh, they'll try to spread it around the world uh, before coming back to Australia and letting us have it here. Do we call it genetic manipulation or genetic meddling? Oh, you can call it either. <laughs> it certainly is meddling, I think, in the case of uh, the future generations of human beings. We've now got technologies that can amend humans as well as animals, plants and microorganisms. And so this year we were very involved in founding a global coalition of uh, groups and individuals who are opposing the use of gene technology in humans, which uh, would change them in ways that can be passed on to future generations. This is what's called eugenics. It's um, a way of human beings selecting what future generations of humans are going to be like. And at the moment, it's outlawed in around about 70 countries globally. But uh, it's the view of our coalition that uh, it should be globally banned because it really does venture into a situation where we can start deciding uh, what characteristics future humans are going to have and on that score, we raised with the Senate Human Rights Committee uh, inquiry, which is currently going on, that uh, human rights of future generations need to be protected from genetic meddling. Of course, 
young people are standing up and saying quite rightly that they have the right to their kids and grandchildren being protected from global climate change. But our argument to the Human Rights Committee is that uh, future generations also require uh, protection from genetic meddling because, of course, we saw throughout the 20th century some pretty disastrous public policies, women being sterilised, disabled people being snuffed out, not only by the Nazis during uh, the 30s and 40s, but uh, in the USA, Canada, Britain and Australia especially, public policies that uh, discriminated against people that were seen as undesirable. And this really got way out of hand. And uh, I think we need to take back initiatives now to say, yes, future generations do have rights, even though they've not been born yet, and that uh, we need to behave ourselves uh, decently, ethically and morally in order to protect the human rights of those uh, people are yet to be born as well. And what rights, Bob, do we have to clean and green food? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, There's been a year-long inquiry into food insecurity in Australia. Um, We call it insecurity because the committee very much focused on uh, supply chains and were claiming that uh, really Australia's got no major problems with food. But of course, something like one and a half million Australians are actually food insecure and are relying on charity to secure enough food to put on their table. And uh, that's not satisfactory. I think there is a right to food. It's certainly asserted by the United Nations that everybody should be adequately fed as a matter of right. And uh, the Australian government simply hasn't observed that. Food Bank, uh, Second Bite and other charities are picking up the slack and feeding literally millions of Australians who can't put food on their table for themselves and particularly for their children because uh, uh, this is really critical because if you don't get a decent start in life, particularly in your food availability, then uh, people are going to grow up very, very disadvantaged. So the Insecurity Inquiry uh, made its report even just last week. They've made 35 different proposals, and in their media release, of course, their top five picks of the things that they were proposing are really... Pretty disappointing, I've got to say. Like they proposed as number one a national food plan, which sounds pretty impressive, except that it was already done a decade ago and governments ever since have been ignoring it. So if this new national food plan is going to mean anything, governments have got to make a real commitment. Certainly this uh, inquiry has suggested that there be a minister for food Uh, within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Good idea, but again, this minister would have to have some real powers to do something about the availability of food in Australia. But in parallel with that, the inquiry has proposed that there be a National Food Council. Well, that sounds pretty good too, but uh, the trouble is that they've nominated government and industry as the main players on the National Food Council, taking away again the initiatives that the 
community is making in the way of trying to solve food security problems with urban agriculture, home gardens, and a whole raft of other things, which are very positive and aimed at making food more available through places like farmers markets and so on. The community has to be involved, but this uh, proposal is for an industry-dominated committee or National Food Council, as they're calling it. And I think that that's uh, really uh, similar to their fourth proposal, which is a national food supply chain map. I don't know what they exactly mean by that, but uh, mapping out food when we're importing a very substantial amount of our food, I don't know what it adds up to. Is it just going to be something like a spaghetti soup, trying to see whether you can get food from the tropics, uh, far north Queensland, fresh fruits and vegetables, for instance, uh, into markets in Sydney and Melbourne and the other capital cities, because that's, of course, where most people are living these days. And we need to ensure that that food is available to everyone. Food innovation, yeah, well, that will fall to industry mainly. People like the CSIRO will have their finger in that pie as well. And it will be, I think, more science and technology as a way of imagining that food production is going to be increased. That's not the solution. They've got to engage people, not uh, technologies. And finally, they're going to aim to eliminate food waste. At the moment, something like 30% of all food produced in Australia is wasted. And what their apparent recommendation adds up to is really a more efficient way of disposing of food waste rather than actually turning it into value-added products, which is what they should be thinking about to make it uh, more available to those who actually need to be fed. And of course, something like 70% of Australian food is sent overseas as commodities which are not value-added in Australia. And uh, the inquiry seems to be silent on that as well. So, yeah, I've gone on at length, but the food insecurity inquiry seems to be a bit of a dud, really. And uh, I think we need to go back to the community. There was a people's food plan developed some time ago. It's been updated recently, and that's where we should be putting our efforts. What about a commitment for a, a good start for infants whose parents or carers rely on infant formula? Yes, well, that was one of the things that we made a submission on this year as well. The um, standard for infant formula is being overhauled. And uh, really, it's uh, like a lot of other things that Food Standards Australia does. They are really a slave to the ultra-processed food companies, Nestle, Mars, and all the other junk food producers including those that you go and buy, uh, KFC, McDonald's, etc. And uh, I think we just need to get off that treadmill. Uh, our food authority should be promoting fresh fruits and vegetables as a, as a good, balanced diet. This is what they used to do when they had as their main focus uh, the health and well-being of the Australian community. Now they're really in service of these highly processed foods, which... Um, I've got a huge number of different synthetic and uh, genetically engineered ingredients in them. And, of course, infant formula is one of those. They claim that uh, 
their food technology is producing uh, something that's going to give infants a good start in life if they can't be breastfed because, of course, breastfeeding should be number one, should be promoted, and uh, breastfeeding is, for infants, the most health-giving thing. You know, uh, the mothers are giving to their children a good start in life. Certainly some women can't feed their kids in that way. Um, Other arrangements should be made if they can. But if you're falling back on infant formula, then I think... uh, it's really a way into a lifelong addiction to those ultra-processed foods which are high in fat, sugars and starches which are giving us a, uh, a nationwide problem of obesity and ill health. To give in to the Australian Food and Grocery Council which represents those uh, huge transnational corporations is just, it's retrograde and uh, It's how most of our regulators are. Um, A recent report from Clayton Moots, which is a a Canberra-based legal firm, said very clearly that our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, which is supposed to minimise the amount of pesticides being used, is captive of the agrochemical industry, particularly crop life, which is their um, propaganda mouthpiece, and that the APVMA, the Pesticides Authority, is dysfunctional in that it's been dragging its heels for decades over reassessing agrochemicals and minimising the amount of residues of those chemicals that end up in the food supply and exposing us to ill health and a loss of well-being. So we can't allow governments to continue to give in to the big end of town to the huge transnational processes of our food and other commodities, uh, we've got to take back the power. And that's really our message for the year is uh, give the community the power to say what it wants to eat, make those great foods of uh, healthy uh, fruits and vegetables available to everybody so that we can have a community that really prospers instead of uh, being dependent on charity and eating foods that are uh, laced with uh, synthetic chemical residues. That should be the way of the future. That should be the vision for a food authority and for a minister who is hopefully going to be based in prime minister and cabinet and have some real power. But it needs a new vision, not the retrograde vision of giving in to uh, those who are just in it for the profits. Well, thank you, Bob, for all the work this year and look forward to talking with you again in 2024. Well, it's going to be another big year, I think, and uh, we certainly value the support of our members and supporters. And if anybody wants to uh, uh, jump on board, of course, uh, send us an email at info at geneethics.org or give us a call and uh, we're happy to engage. Genetic engineering is... uh, the vanguard technology, it's converging with artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, robotics, and a whole lot of other things. We need a new way of dealing with all these challenges, and uh, we're going to take that on in 2024. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Jan. And Bob Phelps is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. <laughs>
What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. This is 3CR. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. During 2023, Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator and publisher of three books, John Curapel, has spoken about a number of issues, notably Australia's slavishly following the US to war with China, Hiroshima, the emergence of a new world order. Today, John looks back on 2023. Well, we're certainly shaped in our thinking at the moment by this conflict in Gaza where it was hardly a conflict, it's more a massacre because you've got a very small um, armed military up against a a massively uh, armed military um, primarily by the United States and we're now seeing something like over 20,000 have been massacred. It's, It's a disproportionate response to what happened on October 7th and of course that was a terrible thing that Hamas did where you are killing innocents but the response has been totally disproportionate and Australia has just come finally out in the last couple of days and called for a ceasefire after refusing earlier purely on the semantics that the uh, proposal didn't go far enough in naming Hamas Hamas's sins but uh, those sins have been dwarfed now by what's happening and it's a terrible thing but it's put the other conflict of course in the in the shade uh ukraine and russia of course what we're finding is uh, ukraine's been left out to left out to hang dry uh, you know, the uh, support from the u.s is now diminishing it's been tied to border security by the u.s congressman by the republicans particularly who are hardly on this side of sanity some of them when you see them interviewed but uh ukraine's been left out to dry the uh summer offensive didn't go too far and really couldn't be expected to go far. There wasn't uh, the air superiority that you, or at least parity that you need to initiate a, uh, an offensive like that. And the Russians were well dug in uh, with all sorts of tank traps and all manner of, of things, uh, dragon's teeth and this sort of thing, which made it impossible to, 
for the uh, Ukrainians allowed that air support to go through. So it's been another year of uh, conflict and war and uh, you know, bookended, as I say, by Ukraine, Russia, and uh, now in Gaza between Palestinians, uh, Hamas and uh, and Israel. So it uh, hasn't been a, a pleasant year, but we've asked how many pleasant years have there been when there hasn't been a conflict uh, somewhere. Well, give us a few good points. There must be some, John, that you've stored up in your yeah. memory. It's the overall picture, and this is what people really don't get, that there's a massive change taking place in the world. Now, of course, that is good news to some. It, it's a, a fear to others. Massive changes with the growth in Asia, particularly driven by China, and the decline of the West, and we're, we're seeing more and more the decline of the West and the Western project is just becoming less effective in the world. We had the other day, um, there's only a few Western nations held out against uh, wanting a ceasefire in this present conflict in, in Gaza. The economics are massively changing. Um, by 2050, it's expected that um, the EU, for instance, will have a, a global GDP of less than 10%, uh, while the, the emerging nations, China, India... Indonesia, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Turkey will be double the size of that. So this puts into perspective what's what's happening. It's a massive change, and most people are not aware of this, or if they're aware of it, they try to suppress it, ignore it, or, or fear it. But uh, that's just what it is is happening. Um, Price Waterhouse Coopers (PwC). So the size of the global economies in 2030, so it's not down, far down the track. It's uh, just six and a bit years off, very much a little bit now because we're in December. The size of the global economies uh, is expected to be China will be 44 billion, a trillion rather. The US will be 28 trillion and India uh, 18 trillion. So you're getting a, a massive change. The Chinese economy will be 50% larger than the US economy. And the Lowy Institute, coming from within Australia, predicts something very similar. Their figures are very much the same as does Standard & Poor's. This is a massive change. In, indeed, the World Bank shows that um, using price parity, what you can actually buy with the money, the economy of China last year was uh, bigger than the US significantly, so 30 trillion to 25 trillion. So th these are massive changes. As recently as 1990, the US economy was five times larger than the other two. Well, now that's dramatically changed. 1990 is not that long ago. So these are the massive changes. Now, for, for some, that's, that's good news. Well, I think that's good news because the current superpower or the, what has been the superpower of the US and the, before that Britain, the Western nations, constantly been at war. They can't seem to help themselves from war. And even the US, former US President uh, Jimmy Carter, who is evidently on his deathbed, uh, having just lost his wife, said that the US is a nation constantly at war. Well, me, good news is that China isn't a, a warlike nation. You don't have to agree with everything that China does, but the last war they went to was in 1979. I still remember it, and uh, they took on the Vietnamese, and they quickly learned that the Vietnamese were very much a battle-hardened army, and uh, 
and gave them a, a bloodied nose and they retreated back over the, the border. It was only a, a slight incursion into Vietnam, Vietnamese land space, but uh, that was enough for the Chinese. The Chinese are not a nation of war. They won't declare war despite Red Alert. You'll remember earlier this year, those quite inane articles in what were great papers in the past, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, that the Red Alert and this image of jets descending down, red jets descending down over, just not going to happen. China would be mad to, to go to, to war. They're the world's greatest trading nation. They have no history of going to war. If they were going to go to war, they'd ruin their trade, and they're the, they're the trading nation. This is absolute insanity that uh, China would go to war. You don't do that. Trade loves peace. It loves harmony. It doesn't like conflict and, and division. So China will not go to war, and people talk about the build-up in Chinese arms. Well, look, yeah, it's building up. That's because the economy is building up, but it's remained constant about 1.7% of Chinese GDP. The US, 3.5%. And Australia's been uh, challenged to go up to about 4%. So uh, China is not a militaristic power that wants to somehow come to Australia and, and bend. Why would they? They're getting our iron ore as it is. It is uh, it's beneficial for both nations, our trade. AUKUS, of course, is absolute insanity. We're expecting China to invade tomorrow, we're told by Red Alert, yet we're putting our trust in submarines in the never-never, if they ever get here, the 2030s with some Virginia-class handoffs from the US, and then 2040, if they're here yet, we're going to develop between three nations a new submarine, basically for chaos if there is ever one. We're going to have finally eight submarines, two of them at sea at any time, to guard 32,000 kilometres of Australian coastline. That's the purported reason. Of course, we all know that that's not the real reason. It's to be part of this US encirclement of, of China. It's impossible for those sort of submarines to do that. We could have got plenty of uh, much cheaper submarines conventionally powered off the shelf basically from Korea or France uh, we knocked them back of course or from Germany many more submarines would have done a far more effective job if their actual goal of course was to protect uh, shipping lanes of course China will not close off shipping lanes they cut their nose off to spite themselves to do that because they're the, as I said the world's greatest trading nation so things are changing. There's uh, depending how you read things. That's good news, or or it's very threatening news. But they certainly are changing. I know there's a lot of people would be happy if China does come more to the fore. That Australia could let go of those coattails of the United States. Oh yes, well we've lost basically any of our independence. You've got. Uh, you know, uh, Richard Miles and uh, our, one of our local members here in, in Newcastle, Pat Conroy, basically warning over the United States um, and how these uh, military plans are going to frustrate China. Paul Keating put it most uh, eloquently, as, as Paul often does, it's like throwing two picks at a mountain, two picks at a mountain, as he repeated it. It's absolutely inane, and it just cannot, it's... King Canute 
trying to stop the rising tide. Of course, he wasn't actually trying to stop the rising tide. He was, he was telling everyone else that not even I, the king, can stop the rising tide. And that's what is happening. I think we need to understand ourselves as an independent nation. We don't want to become a satellite of China either. We don't want to be a satellite of the United States. We need to stand up for ourselves. We are not under threat. Of all nations under the world, Australia would be least under threat. Uh, perhaps New Zealand might be less so, but that's about it. And the Chinese threat, or neither Mongolia or uh, Bhutan, the nations right on the Chinese borders and, and tiny nations. And Mongolia has a lot of minerals and they're not really expecting the Chinese to roll over the border to, tomorrow, but we've got this perverse, inane understanding in Australia that China is going to come down here and invade. Goodness knows what the Indonesians are going to do on their way. They're going to go through Indonesia. And we've still got this strange idea. We, we still can't live in our place in the world, which is the Asia-Pacific realm. We hearken to be in some island somewhere halfway between London and, and New York, well, we're, we're not in the Atlantic, we're in the Pacific to the south of Asia and that's where our future lies and that's beneficial for us because Asia is the happening place. That's where the economies are, are growing. China, India, Indonesia, even the, the sick man of Asia, the Philippines is developing quickly. This is the future for us is in Asia, but we still hearken back to Europe or to North America. No, we're not in that part of the world anymore. We're never worth it. We certainly can't be in that part of the world anymore. Well, we can't finish off the year without talking about the recent COP meeting, climate change. That's the elephant in the room wherever people go, isn't it? We've just had the 28th COP summit and uh, we're starting to get a bit less and less hopeful uh, of them, what they're going to achieve. But uh, this one did make some progress, weaning ourselves off fossil fuel energies. So that's some way, you know, we've got a long way to go on. Of course, speaking to you from Newcastle, which is the world's largest coal port. And we had a protest here a couple of weeks ago with lots of um, boats and canoes and surfboards out making that point and stopping that industry for for 48 hours. But it goes on. Uh, you go up the Hunter Valley here and there are massive open-cut mines. They are, are frightening in their, in their size. Um, there's a whole mythology in this area about coal mining. Of, but, of course, the amounts underground, the old underground mines were putting out is just dwarfed by what's coming out of these massive open-cut mines. So we're still a long way to go on that. Um, all the hottest temperatures years have been in the last decade. The temperature goes up. Still people will deny it. And I say, well, I'm sure these climatologists with multiple degrees are able to measure it by a thermometer what the temperature is and plot what they find on a line, what sort of stuff that you and I learned in, in grade six. But uh, people still deny it. Um, but uh, that's getting less and less. But there's a lot of confiscation happening now and um, trying to uh, you know, stop effective policies being put in place. We're still subsidising, of course, in Australia. I think it's something like $11 billion a year, the fossil fuel industry. So we've got a long way to go. And uh, meanwhile, the temperature keeps rising and uh, one wonders if we're the lobster in the pot. 
Well, we can hope not. John, is there one wish for 2024 or are there many? I guess the wish is we've got to hold on to hope. This episode in Gaza looks to be intractable. But the other day, uh, an intractable uh, episode going back to 1821, the Greeks and, and the Turks got together. Erdogan went to, went to Greece, met the Greek governments. They actually are starting to move ahead. Well, there's a sign of hope. Saudi Arabia and Iran coming together under the, the Chinese leadership, you know, the, the, their negotiation anyway. That's a sign of hope. Really important to keep looking for, for signs of hope in our world. Otherwise, the idea that, that violence is intractable is uh, too ghastly to think of. So let's hope that um, sensible voices uh, can sit down and get away out of this Gaza-Israel uh, conflict because it's insane what is happening. Of course, the same with Ukraine and Russia. There are so many other conflicts in Yemen and elsewhere in Africa in particular. But uh, hopefully sane voices can prevail. And if we all, in our small way, lift our sane voices, hopefully we can make a difference. I guess that's a, that's a sign of hope. Mine might be the little uh, kilogram that's on the scale that makes a difference. Talk to you in 2024, John. I look forward to it, Jan. I've been speaking with Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator, author, John Kirapel. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.